You're listening to the Leadership Foundation Podcast, and I'm Rick Enloe, and I'm here with Dave Hillis, and we are so excited because, as we promised in our Whispercast, we are going to talk to Lisa Pratt-Slayton from Pittsburgh, and uh, Lisa, welcome. It's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Lisa, it's Dave, and uh, it is it is really a, a pleasure to have you on, on the podcast. I was telling Rick that one of the great um, gifts for me as president of the Leadership Foundations over the uh, last couple years is that I have the chance to be your senior associate where you and I get to talk on a regular basis monthly and uh, I have uh, been greatly greatly helped by um, that conversation and so it is a it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the Sidious Playground podcast so thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Um, Lisa one of the things that we wanted to talk about and again what we have tried to do you know uh, on a monthly basis now for the last couple years um, is talk about this idea of the Leadership Foundation's charism, which is seeing the city as God's playground rather than God's battleground. And we recognize that there are a number of different elements that uh, either help a city become more of a playground um, or on the uh, converse side, more of a battleground. Um, one of the particular issues that we are, are really quite convinced has a lot to do, in fact, it, it might be argued, probably has more to do with a city becoming a playground rather than a battleground, is how power is stewarded. Mm. Um, as Rick and I talked, um, it's, it's almost the 800-pound gorilla in the room when you talk about uh, the scripture and its reflection, you know, beginning in Genesis and all the way to the uh, book of Revelation. Time and time again, what surfaces uh, in some ways uh, very clearly and obvious and other ways not so clear and obvious um, is how is power used and particularly how is power used on behalf of others by way of inclusion rather than exclusion. So again, there's there's much to talk about, and I think you and I will have a chance to to drill down into a little bit of that. But I would love um, just here initially, uh, given you are the president of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation, you are the third president, um, and more maybe important than just being the third president of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation, um, you are the president of the very first leadership foundation that got this whole thing going in the first place. And so I can only imagine, um, as uh, a woman in Pittsburgh, having followed Reed Carpenter, that you must um, have some sense of this power dynamic and, and how it plays out. So um, maybe here, Lisa, just initially some some initial thoughts about what has that looked like as you have taken on this uh, really extraordinary responsibility of leading the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation? Um, that's a great question, and it's not. There's no, you know, simple way to answer it. Um, mm-hmm. What I am keenly aware of is the the sense of legacy and uh, and stewardship that I have 
in, uh, you know, we're at year 37, um, headed into year 38 of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation's existence. Remarkable, yeah. And so, yeah, so there's a, there's a long legacy um, of, of the leadership that came before me, particularly of Reed, who was so, you know, I mean, he was, he was here and present for 30 years and, in fact, is still present, and I'll talk about that, you mm-hmm. know, at some point. Um, <clears throat> but he was a very particular kind of leader, and he had a very particular personality and style and and way of engaging people. And you know, one of the challenges that that anyone faces, um, you know, I'm I'm not I, I didn't immediately succeed. Reed. There was another leader in place in between us. Mm-hmm. But there is a, a shadow that that often sits around an organization um, based on the charism of the founder. And I think that's true of Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. I don't think it's bad. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's just true. And so it has to be addressed. And what I said to the board when they named me president uh, about three years ago was, a little over three years ago now, was my desire is to spend the next number of years sorting out and investing in how we honor the legacy of Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation, but we craft and create a new future. Um, Because what worked in 1985 isn't going to work in 2015, and yet there are some very good things that should be honored and the DNA of those things should be leveraged into a new future. So there's a trickiness to that, but, you know, always being mindful of where we've come from and recognizing that that what's needed now and and going forward may look very different. Um, The the other thing I'd say is that, you know, we have never fundamentally lost um, the vision that that PLF and and then the the Leadership Foundation movement was was crafted or born out of. Um, But we've changed our strategies quite dramatically. And and so it's been interesting because the strategies have changed so dramatically, particularly over the last couple of years as Reed has um, reengaged in some very helpful ways um, that he is, as kind of the trustee and the founder, has recognized that strategies must change and that he can release the strategies of old um, and, and I can honor the strategies of old, recognizing that we need to do some things very differently as we move the organization forward. Yeah, Lisa, that's, I think that's a great description. So let me um, sort of peel back the, the covers just a little bit and, and one, make a statement and see if you agree and how that's played out. I, in listening to you, I was mindful of what uh, the famous psychotherapist, you know, and Freud's disciple Carl Jung um, said about um, uh, energy, which ultimately he meant power. He said it's never neutral. Um, yeah. Right. It's either moving in a direction of being generative and positive and inclusive or uh, it's moving the other way. And that he said the great mistake uh, that many of us make is that we actually think energy slash power is neutral. Right. Um, so my, my sense, at least initially, is that you instinctively understood that and that um, the energy of Reed, um, the legacy of Reed, was something that really did need to be stewarded, right? You couldn't ignore it. Um, or it would either, you know, turn out maybe to be less than positive um, or the flip side, and I think the way you have really demonstrated this, it's become a very positive asset moving forward. Is that a an accurate description um, in terms of the way you engaged him? 
Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think that's a very accurate description. You know, I, I had, um, I've worked for Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation for 10 years, um, but it's really only been in the last two or three that I've come to know Reed and, and describe what I would call a friendship or a relationship with him. Um, prior to that, my interaction with him was very, uh, very secondary, and, you know, most of my knowledge of him came through other people, particularly the, mm-hmm. the president that preceded me. So I I realized that I had some perceptions that may or may not be valid about who he is. And I've, there are tons of stories about Reed that circulate around Pittsburgh, you know, some of which are probably absolutely true and some of which maybe not so much. <laughs> and so, you know, it, when, when, you, when you step into a role like this, everything has to be examined. And mm-hmm. one of the first things that I needed to examine was my relationship with Reed. If I was going to lead this organization forward well, then we had to decide, Reed and I together, I think, if there was a relationship worth pursuing. And I remember taking a trip to Florida. I think there were LF presidents meetings there shortly after I had been named president in the spring of, of 20, if it would have been yeah. 2013. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sat with Reed for several hours and he said, well, it's your agenda. You know, what do you want to talk about? I said, Reed, I, I don't know you and you don't know me and we know things about each other, but let's see if we can, you know, put, put, put a new starting point in place here because like it or not, and at that time I'm not so sure he liked it, quite frankly, mm-hmm. um, or he was questioning it, rather, I shouldn't be, be quite so strong in that, is, you know, is this the right person to lead this organization forward? And he had no way of knowing whether mm-hmm. I was or not. And so that was a first step towards, you mm-hmm. know, us beginning to know each other a little bit and spend some time together. It's taken, you know, I think really, you know, until about a year ago at this time. So there was a good, you know, year and a half to two years Mm -hmm. of us, you know, learning, learning about each other and recognizing, you know, that maybe, maybe I was in fact the person for the role in this season, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I've always held the role with a very open hand and my board is very clear about that. Um, but there is a there was a turnaround needed in the organization, and there was a transition into a very new way to think about um, the strategies that we wanted to pursue and how we wanted to go about being a leadership foundation. And I'm uniquely suited to that for this season. That's mm-hmm. it. So I think Reed has come to, um, I, you know, I don't want to sound you know stuffy, but or you know puffed up in any way. But I think he's come to understand that and at some level appreciate it. Um, yeah, in fact, I can I can vouch for that uh being a regular conversation with him his his high high view of you and 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 again i i do think it speaks lisa to something that um again i'd like to explore just a bit more with you 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 describe the whole um dynamic with reed as a as a bit of a process and and almost mm-hmm. kind of uh in that embedded within that it was probably a number of steps that you needed to take and again i'm mindful of the fact that um, that's probably what good leadership, at least in part, is, right, is is taking a good, hard, sober look at what the dynamics are, um, what is taking place, what isn't taking place, and then um, creating a strategy, you know, of how to move forward. So uh, if, if that is generally true, along with just getting to know Reed uh, relationally, what were some of the other what you would say is significant steps you took in order to navigate uh, this this process. 
Yeah, specifically as it relates to read. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I teach this all the time, right? Part of what we do in Pittsburgh, um, in a, in a kind of unique way is invest in, and in, in the development of leaders, really discipleship work around mm-hmm. vocation and calling and all of those things. Um, and one of the things I, I just did a session today with a, with a client and, you know, one of the questions that came up was, well, how do I lead up? You know, if I'm not in the position of the, you know, the executive suite or the C-level position, how do I lead up? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's what this was, right? How do I lead up with Reed? And so the primary question, you know, I think there are two questions that have to be answered. What matters most to you, Reed, and how can I serve you? Mm. And when Beautiful. you ask those two questions, it shifts the paradigm, right? I'm not asking for things from him, at least not at that point, although I have and will continue to. But what matters most to read? Where is his heart um, and where is his passion? And are there ways that we can, we can invest in that and help him to see that the things we're doing, maybe they're not the way he would have done them, or he would choose to do them even now, but they are helping to accomplish the things that matter most to him. Um, and, and, you know, and what does, what does serving look like in that capacity? And so, you know, I think that's a responsibility and an obligation that, you know, every leader has, um, particularly to the founders or what I would call the trustees of the organization. And Reed is certainly that. Yeah. So, you know, how do you navigate that? There's a temptation, you know, particularly to want to differentiate yourself very significantly from the leader that you've succeeded or, you know, who's been the founder mm-hmm. particularly you know, and someone like Reed, who's got a big personality, mm-hmm. um, you know, will always have a shadow over the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation, not in a negative way, but it's just a reality. Yeah, and, the um, legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. the legacy is there. So, you know, so how do you engage that person and understand what their interests are, all the while recognizing that how some of those interests get served may not look like the way that they executed or the way that they determined was right to do in a previous season or even a pre, I mean, we're really talking about a previous generation here. Um, And I think Reed is wise enough and, you know, mature enough to recognize. And I think that was a real turning point. He and I had a conversation um, about a year and a half in, maybe a year into to my presidency, and it was a real turning point for him to say, you know, I recognize that I... Um, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but it, the, the intent was, you know, I have forgiven the organization, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, that trustees and founders have to do that because what comes behind them um, may or, and, and maybe forgiven himself too, because there are mm-hmm. ways that we, you know, that we do things when we're starting and we're scrappy and, you know, you look back and go, okay, I got that done, but there was some, you know, casualty that came with it. Absolutely. And I yeah. think Reed recognized that the, be- and, and it was a, it was a conversation of real mutuality. And I think that was the first time that, 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 that kind of a conversation had occurred where Reed could really see and understand the potential of what I might be able to, to bring to the organization. Mm-hmm. And he also understood that he could have a very critical role to play, but it could look very different than it did, you know, 10, even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the other, uh, so I love, I love that description, Lisa, of those two questions. Um, you know, what is it, um, you know, that you most need from me and how can I serve you? Um, the other element, it seems to me at least, 
again, embedded within that was your ability to not be threatened by the previous leader. And mm. I, I've oftentimes watched how it, this is a little bit of a almost a, a uh, high-contact sport. The previous president or leader will oftentimes, you know, feel like, you know, they're having to protect their legacy because they're being attacked, you know, by the, the new leader. But the new leader oftentimes feels like their, you know, legs are getting cut from under them, you know, by the previous um, leader. And it, it, it becomes this v- vicious, rivalistic, you know, sort of reality of which, you know, nobody, you know, seems to live through. And certainly the organization doesn't benefit from it. So, again, I think if that's an accurate assessment, what was it that you did um, that you were able to think through, maybe gain a perspective on, that allowed you to see a person like Reed, as big a personality as he is, as important as his legacy was to Pittsburgh and really to the entire leadership network, not to be threatened by that? Hmm. Um, That's a great question. Um, You know, I, there were a couple things. One was just the, the sober reality of what I was dealing with, which nobody could have completely understood unless they were very close into the organization. I mean, when I took the organization over, we were in a crisis. And so, you know, I was managing through tough financial situations. I was trying to keep things moving and afloat. And when you're, when your head is down, and you're you're really focused on trying to rebuild and restore and turn around. Um, you you don't have time for a lot of nonsense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. it's just a reality. And so, I you know, there were occasional times when you know I would hear things or something would happen, and you know, is is Reed with us? Is he not with us? What's going on? And and I don't. Um, I didn't find any of that helpful. And so my decision was, you know, and I made this decision in a number of, in, with a number of relationships, and Reed was certainly one of them, that I had to, you know, it's back to what I said before, I had to reestablish relationships with some key people yeah. if I was going to lead this organization. And Reed was a primary person. So I, um, I also am, I mean, part of the work that we do, is walking into, uh, we do kind of high-level interve- interventions in organizations that are in, in dealing with some kind of a transition or change. So mm-hmm. I'm very accustomed to dealing with, you know, high-powered men particularly um, in, in those kinds of environments. And, you know, I don't, I mean, I certainly can be intimidated. There's no question about that. But I don't, I don't buck too easily because mm-hmm. I'm used to walking into those scenarios and I do have a way of kind of separating myself from, you know, the emotion of it and, yeah. and just saying, okay, what's actually going on here, right? I mean, that's a leadership question that we all should ask when there's high emotion around. What's actually going on here? Right. And what was actually going on, as far as I could see, was that Reed's looking at this thing that he's created that's launched a movement of, of leadership foundations, and it could potentially go down. And mm-hmm. so he's nervous and upset and worried and concerned mm-hmm. and maybe a little angry and I'm who else is he going to who else is that going to get you know addressed to yep. but me I'm the leader so yep. I have to bear that burden and I have no problem with that um but I also several times you know remember saying you know I, I'm not 
sure exactly how this is all going to turn out, but we're on a course. So we're, you know, I'm, I'm asking you to trust the process and trust the course that we're taking. Yeah. And, you know, if, if it, if it works, then, you know, praise the Lord and all is well. Um, and there were a lot of people who had invested time in helping to reset the course. Mm-hmm. And those, those were people who were close to the situation. And I think over time, I mean, I would say we're still in that course and on that course, mm-hmm. but over time it's, it's been demonstrated that, that we're doing some things that have helped to really revitalize the organization. And I think once we started having a few of those early wins, um, you know, that also builds confidence in a founder to say, okay, I got this. I can, I can step back in and be part of this. Yeah. You know, it, it again strikes me, too, that um, one of the things I know that has been important to my own leadership, and this came through a a mentor of mine where he has continued to say to me that the single hardest thing to do in leadership is to tell the truth. And, you know, initially you kind of pause and go, well, what what are you talking about? I mean, what else would we be talking about unless it's the truth? But of course it it was a a little bit of a, a kind of a double entendre question because he recognized. And of course, then I instantly recognized how often in leadership, we sit before boards of directors or potential investors, and you know, at the end of the day, we are spinning things a little bit, mm-hmm. um, right? Sure. Trying to get people to get energized, get excited, uh, become inspired. And while there is always going to be a part of leadership that requires that, it, it can only be something that augments the initial thrust of leadership, which is exactly like you said, what is going on here? Let's, let's tell the truth about the situation, whether it's good or bad. Um, and I think your ability to do that, Lisa, is, uh, is, is remarkable. Um, another question I think embedded in this, and you kind of hinted at this a bit, is, is being a woman. Um, say a bit about what um, leadership um, as a woman, particularly in probably some pretty heavily male-dominated contexts, um, has taught you. Uh, what are some of the great lessons you've walked away with? What are some of the things that you're still scratching your head over and wondering, will this ever end uh, moving forward? Um, uh, yeah, it, so it's it's an interesting journey. I mean, it, not only as a woman, a, a woman in leadership, um, but woman, a woman leading, um, you know, a Christian nonprofit um, is, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it's an anomaly, but it's pretty close. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I don't quite honestly, I don't think about it a lot. Um, and um, it's a reality that I live with every day. And so, you know, there are certainly situations that I walk into. What I have found where, where I could be, you know, it, it, it's assumed that I'm there as someone's assistant or, you know, I'm, I, I'm yep. someone's wife, right? I'm not meant to be in the room. Yep. What I have found, and, and you know, you can, you can characterize this however you wish, is that when I have been um, the most effective doing what I'm doing and I'm walking into a room particularly where, there are a group of people who don't know me um, and and don't you know know what potentially I have to offer or what I'm, I can contribute. Um, it, it, oftentimes, I'm walking in because someone has invited me to be there, 
and if I've been invited in, um, that that's very helpful because that adds uh, that that credentials me at, at some level, right? It gives me a, a bit of credibility. Yeah. Um, and what I have found over and over again, and and I I coach a lot of women around this, is we do not have to prove ourselves. We just have to show up and be who we are. And what I found in those environments is that if I if I try and kind of bully my way in too early and make myself known and, you know, kind of posture and, you know, make my presence known in the room, it doesn't usually go very well. It's just not effective. I am most effective and, and because of how I'm gifted particularly and wired and, you know, it's part of my sort of calling and vocation is if I can listen for a while to what's going on and then make observations and synthesize some of what I'm seeing, I have learned over the years that not very many people can do, can do that. And when I do that, it's often um, I get the look of, oh, well, maybe she is you know, worth at least listening to for a minute, right? Mm -hmm. Because so, so it's really what, and, and the reason I describe it in that level of detail is because that's part of my gifting. And if I can't be in integrity with who God created me to be and show up that way in those kinds of environments, because I think I have to be something else to be a woman in leadership, then I've miserably failed, not only myself, but the work we do at PLF, which is very much around helping people to reintegrate all the parts of their lives through their, uh, the lens of their vocation and calling. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I, I, I work hard with a degree of, of high degree of intentionality to, to show up the way that God made me to show up in, and hopefully in a way that's effective. I've, I can, I've been known to show up and be very ineffective too. So please don't get me wrong. <laughs> right. Um, but but there is a I mean part of what makes me a very good consultant and executive coach is the way that I can integrate information for people and give them a new perspective. And mm -hmm. so if I can do that well in an environment where I'm not known particularly well, then it and 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 particularly if someone has invited me to be part of a conversation or dialogue with people of influence or power, it it, it I am respected. What's very interesting to me is that I have very little issue with this um, and very little concern and pushback from people in the marketplace. The place where I get the pushback yeah. is in Christian communities yep. because women in so many Christian communities are still viewed as you know, a, a slightly lesser than, yep. you know, human being. Um, and so if I, if I walk into an executive boardroom with, you know, 13 C-level executives and I'm there at the request of one of them to help them process through an issue, um, I got a seat at the table, <laughs> right? Yep. Yep. But I could walk into a, a group of elders, all male elders, and I may or may not have a seat at the table. So, you know, those dynamics, I think, um, are still challenging for women, um, particularly in the Christian community. Yeah, very well said. Um, you know, to maybe change uh, tactics here a little bit, because I, I want to take at least a few minutes to have you uh, have a chance to talk a little bit about what the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation is doing, because what you've done um, is really grabbed a hold of this leadership idea um, and effectively um, created um, a kind of program that allows the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation uh, to think about the entire leadership of the city, both within the faith community as well as the business community, the nonprofit community. And if I have this right, Lisa, the basic 
um, argument is if we can affect these leaders um, who then in turn run the programs that affect the poor, the dispossessed, you know, the lost, um, that gives us our best and most expedient chance uh, to see Pittsburgh actually fulfill, you know, the Sam Shoemaker dream of uh, becoming a city famous for God as it is for steel. Um, so if, if that's generally true, and I'm sure you can say it much much more elegantly than me, um, what are you learning about um, engaging the leadership of a city? And, and what are some of the um, things that you are um, talking about, teaching to, having people reflect on? Give us a quick synopsis of all that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it really, it, there are a couple aspects to it that I, you know, I would want to want to highlight. Um, and the shift in focus for, for this really came from my predecessor, um, who was, who, who succeeded Reed and, and I worked for for a number of years, you know, and the question he was seeking to answer was what would happen if we invested in the leaders themselves rather than trying to provide all the services and, and programs um, mm-hmm. and run things um, and get ourselves out of the programmatic world and um and so we began to make that shift shortly after I joined the organization in 2005, and it took a number of years to commission, you know, some of the things we were doing off either into independence or into partnership with another organization, but that's what we did. And we started with a, a premise that was a little bit different um, than some of the historical leadership foundation work, and this was a this was an interesting point of, I won't call it disagreement, but we viewed the world a little differently, Reed and I, on this, and that was that if we wanted a better city, um, it, what we weren't going to get one simply by investing in the nonprofit and social sector, mm-hmm. that we absolutely had to engage the marketplace leaders, and we had to help them understand to reintegrate their understanding of stewardship around themselves and around their businesses for the good of the city. And so we started this program called the Leaders Collaborative, which we launched in 2007, and it has a theological foundation that, that essentially says, you know, you're as much in, in full-time vocational ministry if you're the CEO of a startup as if you're the executive director of a nonprofit that are feeding the homeless, mm-hmm. because both things are absolutely necessary to the flourishing of the city. Yeah. If you don't engage the, the business community, the, the places that are actually creating wealth and economic wholeness for people um, and help them to understand what that means in the context of business, um, then all will be lost. And a business leader can make a lot of money and give generously philanthropically, but if his business is not actually creating human flourishing for the people that work there and for the potential people who could work there mm-hmm. um, and for the by the goods and services that they're producing and putting out into the marketplace, then the city doesn't get whole. So we took a much more holistic view of it, and we, we actually had uh, initially a bit of a bias for the marketplace um, because many of the business leaders that we were encountering had a lament, which sounded something like, you know, I, I don't know if what I'm doing has anything to do with my Christian faith. You know, I run a business. I'm yeah. a doctor. I'm a lawyer. And what they, the message they were getting, whether intended or not, in many local congregations, you know, sounds something like, you know, great lawyer, 
you know, Jack Smith, go make your money as an attorney and then come, you know, be on the stewardship committee or be on the governance committee for the church because that's where you're going to do the real kingdom work. And we hold to a very different perspective. You know, I I mean, a a lawyer is a purveyor of justice in our our society and whatever what you want to say about lawyers, good, bad, or or ugly, um, there is a, there is a, a, a godly intent to the practice of law and justice. Mm-hmm. And if we can help lawyers understand that and have some that are beginning to be part of, of restoring that vocation for the good of the city, well, isn't that an awesome thing? Mm-hmm. But no one's really discipling people around vocation in quite that way. Mm-hmm. So we took that uh, you know, on as part of our calling and work. And what we found over time was, and we've always had, we continue to serve nonprofit leaders, and, and we'll always do that. That's, you know, that's DNA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we also found that we were starting to attract pastors um, to what we were doing, because they were recognizing that they were hearing similar laments from people in their congregations, and they didn't have a way to think about you know, what I would call as a whole life discipleship. Um, and so they started joining some of the things that we're doing, particularly the Leaders Collaborative. Um, and they're, you know, many of them are seminary trained MDivs um, who are, you know, have been taught how to preach a good message and do some pastoral care. And they're now running organizations. And that's a very different thing than what they were equipped to do in seminary. Right. So they're also bumping up against some real leadership challenges. So to create an environment where they can come in and and be part of a learning community with people from very, very different vocational spheres of influence has created kind of a rich learning soup. Um, and people sit at a table, you know, together that uh, under no other circumstances would they find themselves, you know, in a room together for any length of time, but yeah. for this kind of an offering. And that is, you know, that's the kind of generative development that we want to be part of, you know, putting out there that I think will ultimately have, you know, significant impact in, in our city. Well, you know, and I, I think, you know, again, obviously I'm um, uh, well aware of what you've done. I, I would add, Lisa, that one of the other things that has been remarkable about the kind of work you all have done is it's not as though, um, and I think you'd be the first to say this, there aren't other initiatives really around the country and the world that have decided well, the best way to, you know, change a country or a city, make it flourish, is is almost a kind of Reaganomics approach to spirituality, right? You you impact the the kind of elite, the cream, and theoretically it will then trickle down to people on the streets. Um, and what what I think about the, the leaders collaborative in Pittsburgh is that you you've you've created almost this third way whereby I think you are absolutely impacting leaders who have responsibility, um, but you connect them to the poor. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I've watched many leadership programs that never make that what I would describe as ethical jump uh, into, okay, you are a lawyer or you are a doctor or you do uh, run a company, um, and there are some leadership principles that are absolutely required, but then with you all in Pittsburgh, you say, and how do you measure this in light of whether or not those that are in the hardest places, um, are they actually positively being impacted? And I, I think that is a, 
that, that's the thing that makes you almost most unique is your ability to connect those t- two things that aren't usually connected. You know, it's it's it, it's it's not the easiest thing to do, and and we are we are continue to work at it. Um, one of the things that I think helps that shift is when it, you know. So if you're talking to an entrepreneur or a business leader um, who who has a what I would call a dualistic kind of thinking about um, the purpose of his business versus how he thinks about his philanthropic or community life, and when I can when I can help that person understand that the the work they're doing through their business can actually be um, a powerful remedy and tool for bringing about human flourishing for disadvantaged people. It helps them to rethink their understanding of the marketplace and of stewardship. So there's a a great book... um, that is was written by a man, he's up in your neck of the woods, uh, Jeff Van Duzer, um, who's at Seattle Pacific University. And the, um, and the title of the book is, you know, Why Business Matters to God um, and what's, what's Broken That Still Needs to Be Fixed, right? So he's not, you know, suggesting that business has it all figured out. But he, he talks about what he calls the genesis model of business. And he extracts the principles right from Genesis 2, which is, the, you know, many would describe theologically as the cultural mandate, which is the purpose of business is, um, <clears throat> is to create, you know, communities where people can participate in producing goods and services that benefit the rest of the community um, and that they have the ability to do meaningful work out of their own sense of vocation and calling. Those are my words, not his, but you get the, the gist of it. What, what's been lost. And, and so if business leaders are thinking this way and thinking about not just the people they hire, but also the products and the services that they're producing and how that has impact um, out into the community, then you get a very different understanding of stewardship and yeah. human flourishing in a city. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that's going to, there's no magic bullet here, right? Because, you know, you're not going to talk to the CEO of a global company and have him fundamentally shift everything he's doing overnight, but he can make a series of small significant changes and, and think about hiring practices and other things. I mean, a fully orbed understanding of faith integrated into, into the marketplace is one where the gospel influences every kind of practice you have in place. Yeah, and, and then beyond, right? And, and there's always a, um, you know, there's always a, a, a component to it that's in service to the broader community. Part of what I think many business owners miss um, is that they, they have a responsibility, a stewardship responsibility to the communities where that business exists. So what does that mean yeah. in your context for your particular organization? That's great. That's great, Lisa. Hey, Lisa, this is Rick. I had a question. Um, I, I get a chance to teach at the University of Washington here um, a little course on discourse ethics, which is just a way of saying, you know, having conversations with people. And um, I, I heard you say that uh, way back, even when you first were talking about engaging with Reed, that you, you said, this is a quote, I wrote it down, uh, he and I had a conversation. And mm-hmm. then I also hear you talking about um, being conversant with, uh, you know, in, in the other uh, um, engagements you have with leaders. And I wondered um, where, uh, you know, kind of where did you get that? Because a lot of people, <laughs> uh, that seems so simple, but a lot of people 
they just think, well, uh, everyone will, you know, notice results or, you know, uh, um, I'll just, you know, keep my head down, but they don't ever engage anybody. And I wonder if you, uh, you know, what connection you would make with that ability to just be in, you know, vital conversation as sort of an empowering or liberating kind of, uh, experience. It's a great question. Um, I, um, so it's, it's learned behavior for me. Um, I happen to have a colleague that I've worked with very closely almost for, I've known for a long time and he's been on staff with me for about eight years. His name is Rick Wellock and he is a master at creating conditions for people around what I would call true dialogue Mm -hmm. versus the monologue, right? Right. And the monologue is the story that we're either telling ourselves in our head or the story we're telling other people that allows for very little interaction or response. Um, When we talk about dialogue, and we actually teach people to do this, and so I've been, you know, I'm still practicing, but I've been learning this for the last number of years, the starting point of an effective dialogue um, is is not the transmission of information. It's gaining a place of mutual or shared understanding. Mm-hmm. And so it's worth, you know, I have learned over and over again the hard way, Rick, that if if I assume you understand what I'm talking about and I assume that I understand what you're talking about, it's a pretty good bet that it's not going to go well, right? <laughs> so So taking that time on the front end to ask those questions, and one of them is, what do you really want? What really matters most to you? Um, you know, and, and gaining some sense of shared understanding outside of any issue or challenge, but just, you know, who, I, you know, it, I mean, it's, it's what, what is the old adage, you know, um, nobody cares what you know until they know you care, right? right. It's, it's, about, it's about demonstrating a degree of caring for another person and really listening to what they really want and what matters to them. And what I have found over and over again is that I'm, if I'm holding a position on an issue, and I want to kind of have my way, um, it, it rarely goes that way. But if I have a position on an issue and I communicate that to a colleague or an adversary or something and say, look, here's what I'm really after here, and they can share the same thing, what we often can very quickly see is that there's a new possibility that emerges out of that because we found this common platform that we can work from. So in my language, it's really more than conversation. It's an actual dialogue. Right. Um, and there's a lot of you know, research and other things. There's a particular framework we use when we, when we do this um, in, in conversation with people. The other thing I've learned from Rick is you know, to do a little bit, and you, once you do this a few times, you can do it very quickly, um, is to sort of mentally um, separate the difference between, you know, kind of the, the data and information um, versus the, the, the feelings that it's evoking um, and kind of what you're thinking about all of that. We often, you know, kind of conflate all of those things together. And so you give me a piece of information and I have an emotional reaction to it. And it's not about the information. It's about how I process it and think about it, right? So if you can separate those things apart a little bit and get clear in your own mind, then you have, I mean, it it requires a little self-examination and reflection, even in the moment, even to push the pause button in the moment, which is not something where we give ourselves a lot of time to do. Say, you know, what is really going on here? Why did I react that way? You know, how might I step back out of the situation and and reevaluate how I want to pursue it. Um, 
I think it creates it creates very different conti- conditions for a, 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 a sort of boundary or a baseline re- relationship to be formed, and then you have something you can work from, d- despite you know the fact that there may be very significant differences between people. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, resolving differences is not about compelling you to see it my way, right? But that's how we we operate most of the time. Yeah. Well, we uh, if you watch any television, you do. That's for sure. Uh, the you know the 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 comment you made about the the sort of like the marketplace versus maybe you know the the table at the elders i wonder um if if you know the the sort of monologue culture is more alive in in some of those religious settings uh, as you know as sort of a lagging um kind of feature of of what happens there versus um the in the business community i don't know if that is that i'm not saying i know that that happens but what do you think yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's a. I think it's an interesting speculation. I think there's. You know, if we were to if we were to flush it out, we'd probably find that's true. Um, you know, bu- business business leaders, for the vast most part, um, you know, they're whatever you want to say about them, and it obviously varies greatly from from business leader to business leader. But they're you know they're usually very kind of clear and congruent about you know what they're after, what their strategies are, what they're trying to accomplish, what their goals are, and they tend to take a fairly pragmatic view of change. Um, because they know it's inevitable, right? It's yeah. it's just part of the part of the everyday rock and roll of managing a team or running a business or you know it's just how it goes. Um, in in institutional life, which we could maybe characterize, you know, the church, um, there are all these institutional habits and behaviors um, that that get passed down and passed through. And um, and it's amazing to me how quickly even you know new people join the parish council or the elder board, and very soon they've assimilated into that culture, right? Yeah, right. And it's it's how we do. Th- you know, it often sounds like well, that's just how we do it around here, right? So there's not you know the the tendency to be a little more pragmatic and also to to examine what's really going on. How do we really make decisions? And what are we really basing our decisions and our biases on? Because a lot of it is, you know, historical stuff that, that doesn't have any relevance anymore. Um, but nobody takes the time to examine it. And so if you walk in with a very different perspective into that environment, um, it's very, very difficult to be an agent of change, right? right. You either, you know, you either get the boot or you assimilate. And you, those are usually the two options being actually helping something to, to, to change can be extraordinarily difficult if there's a lot of institutional behavior and habit. And it doesn't mean that businesses don't have them. Please don't right, misunderstand right. me. But I've just found, you know, the nature of, you know, most most business people and marketplace people that I have to deal with, and even even particularly entrepreneurs. We work with a lot of entrepreneurs, both in the social sector and in the in the business sector. And change is a way of life for them, right? So right. they're always willing to challenge a norm. Oh, why do we do it this way? Well, maybe we should think about it this way because it's it's the nature of what they're trying to do when they're scrappy and building something from scratch. But as you get into more institutional environments, it becomes increasingly difficult for people to. It, it's what I would describe from an organizational development system. They become closed systems, right? Yeah. There's no light coming in. <laughs> yeah, 
well, and you 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 either kind of come into the loop and stay in the loop, or you you know you get spun out um, because there's no way for people to bring new fresh ideas and, and perspectives into the conversation. Well, I just uh, this is the first chance I've had to even hear from you, and I just want to say that uh, I look forward to meeting you face to face. And I also think that you're um, you know you like a lot of wisdom uh, relative to asking the the great question because I think at least speaking from the you know, from the pastor point of view, uh, we're sort of trained to give the right answer instead of ask the right yeah. question. And I think that that's probably um, the most disempowering approach. And uh, I think you've really, you're really helping uh, to teach us and teach me, um, you know, the idea that really dialogue is based on um, the great question, you know, and not just, you know, like you said, information and, and then assumption that you agree. So thank you so much for uh, sharing today. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, and Lisa, as, as we wind up, I, I would just also echo my, my thanks. And I, again, going back to where we started and this idea that, you know, this is a City is Playground podcast. And one of the things that, that Rick and I have tried to do each month is look at a different, you know, aspect or characteristic of, of how does a city, in fact, become a playground. And, you know, we've had a chance to talk about um, some wonderful things like, you know, a theology of place and, um, you know, what and how programs look on the ground. But I think in talking with you, um, there's no escaping uh, the idea that if you're serious about seeing a city become a playground, um, it is a fool's errand if you aren't addressing the issue of power uh, and, and how that gets stewarded and pushed into the right places. And that, as you said, you know, elegantly, it's power at every level, um, right? It's in mm-hmm. the nonprofit and the power issue. It's in the faith community. It's clearly in the business community. And so uh, you have given us a great way and a great framework, Lisa, by which to think about, you know, let's allow our cities to become playgrounds, you know, from Pittsburgh to Pretoria, from Dallas to Delhi. Uh, but if we're going to do that, uh, we're going to have to continue to think uh, more deeply, more wisely, probably even more courageously about how power is used and, and to do it yeah. in ways that uh, that uh, can bless all that are involved. So, uh, Lisa, with that, um, our, our deepest thanks and uh, many blessings on you and all that you're trying to do to make uh, Pittsburgh uh, a playground rather than a battleground. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dave. I, I want to close with just one one thought um, that that has influenced me significantly over the last number of years. Um, this idea of power, you know, we are all given creative power. God, God empowered us. He created us to be in his image. Mm-hmm. And the very best model to look at in stewarding power is, of course, the life of Jesus. Jesus had all the power in the world, and the way he stewarded it for the vast most part was to give it away. And so mm-hmm. that is, I think, part of the calling and responsibility of the leader, and that, you know, when power corrupts, it's because we're hoarding power. Absolutely. We're keeping it, we're keeping it from others. So if we hold the power and we give it away and we give access to people who otherwise do not, then pow- and power is not a zero-sum game, That's right. <laughs> right? That's right? There's an abundance of it. So, so if, I, if I, I'm a great cook and I teach you how to make an omelet... I'm not going to not know how to make an omelet anymore, but now you're going to know how to make one. I've I've given away my power at some level, and we don't think of it that way, and it's a very yep. significant power 
paradigm shift, but Jesus gave his power away over and over and over again and ultimately gave his life for that purpose. And I think we have to look at that model if we're, when we're talking about what it means to steward power well. Well said. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, thanks again, Lisa. This is the Leadership Foundation podcast. And if you have any comments or you want to give Lisa five stars on Yelp, then, uh, you know, get a hold of <laughs> us at uh, leadershipfoundations.org. So uh, thanks again. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.